came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien, and each month. We bring you two fabulous episodes for your listening pleasure on SoundCloud, iTunes and Spotify. One episode features Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave, who gives us his monthly sky guide for observers, accompanied by his fascinating astronomical tangent. And the other episode is a feature interview with a respected astronomer, astrophysicist, space scientist or particle physicist. We also include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly and mask up when you're out and isolate as much as possible as we work our way through this COVID-19 crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. For today's feature interview, We zoom over to Ithaca and Cornell University in the state of New York to speak with Dr. Thea Kazakis, an exoplanet researcher who specialises in biosignature detection and atmosphere modelling. Let's zoom over there right now. Hello, Thea. Hello. Dr. Thea Kazakis is a NASA Space Grant recipient and postdoc researcher at the Carl Sagan Institute, Cornell University. Thea is a pioneering researcher in techniques to study the atmospheres of exoplanets and has a wide range of research projects in hand, including biosignature modelling and detection and studying the UV environments of Earth-like exoplanets. Thanks for speaking with us, Thea. Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure. Now, before we talk about your exoplanet modelling and detection research, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Thea, and tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place? All right. So I, I was actually originally born in New York, where I'm living right now, but I spent most of my childhood in New Jersey, so just one state over. And I grew up there with my family and basically is just surrounded by forest. And something nice about that is there really wasn't much light pollution where I grew up. It was, I mean, we were close to, you know, civilization, but where I live, we didn't even have sidewalks or street lights or anything. So I feel like a big part of why I became so interested in astronomy as a child was being able to go outside and look at the stars at night. And my father 
had, well, still has this really great telescope and he would bring it out sometimes and show me the planets and the stars. And he actually recently said to me that he thought he was just dragging me out there and just, you know, right. torturing me when he was doing that as a small child. It's like, no, I love that. And he's, he's now realizing that now that I've gotten my PhD in astrophysics. And in high school, I ended up taking astronomy as the selective course. And our teacher showed us Carl Sagan's old Cosmos series. And that was just really inspiring for me. It was really exciting. And it was just, in particular, the episode that centered on Earth, actually, where there's like this beautiful scene where it's Vivaldi's spring concerto playing and Carl Sagan just sitting in this field of flowers being like, how did this get here? And I just remember going home that day and looking around and be like, oh my gosh, how did this get here? And it, it just sort of spiraled from there. That's how it happened. Well, that sounds like that you were switched on to space and astronomy at a very early age. Did you have any other ambitions when you were a school child? I don't really feel like I did. Until I got to college, I don't think that school was really that important to me, which I know now sounds bad. I was really interested in a lot of things other than science. In particular, I really liked my English classes and my history classes. And I played the piano competitively for over 10 years before college. And it was a big decision for me whether or not to go into just music or science. And in the end, I just thought science was really cool. So I did that. And yeah, I did. I definitely wasn't one of those people that grew up that's like, oh, I'm just going to be like this amazing, ambitious scientist. And it might sound funny, but whenever someone has described me as ambitious, to myself, I don't feel like I'm very ambitious. I just feel like I'm doing things that I think are really interesting and cool. And when I found out in high school that I could study astronomy for a job, I was like, what? It's crazy. That's so exciting. And yeah, so I'm basically, I really love it, which is good because it's been a lot of hard work and it would not have been as enjoyable if I didn't love it so much. Exactly. That's fantastic. Now, <laughs> after that successful school career, you completed your undergrad degree in astrophysics and physics down in Charleston, mm -hmm. and you and a fellow student made an amazing discovery. Tell us about Derek and how you discovered Derek. Well, first of all, thank you for using the name that I picked out for him. So Derek is a, either, it's actually still up for debate, even though the discovery was over seven years ago now. So Derek is either a very large gas giant or a smaller brown dwarf orbiting the star Kappa Andromeda. So Derek's, I suppose, official name is Kappa Andromeda B, but we just thought he really looks like a Derek, and I just thought it was a fun name. Yeah, and I was, I had always thought, like, if I ever find a planet, I'm going to give it, like, a cool name, not something, you know, boring. Derek just has a really good ring for it. Everyone always asks, is Derek named after someone? No, because if I name the planet slash brown dwarf I found after someone, then everyone else would be like, why didn't you name it after me? So Derek's, Derek's just Derek. So uh, this project I was working on with my advisor, 
Joe Carson, who's still a professor at College of Charleston, and another student, Laura Stevens, who is a graduate student at University of Montana in Missoula. What we were doing was we were doing direct imaging of exoplanets. So right now there's several thousand known exoplanets, mainly transiting exoplanets, so waiting for planets to eclipse their stars. So direct imaging has not found many of those planets. So when we made this discovery, I think there are only about 12 known directly imaged planets. But what's exciting about direct imaging is, as you might have guessed from the name, we're directly imaging the planet. So it's one of the only methods where we are actually seeing the planet, not just something that indicates that there's a planet. Yep. So what we were doing there was we were part of this big survey, the Subaru Seed Survey, and they had a lot of nights reserved on the Subaru telescope on Mauna Kea in Hawaii. And we were observing certain stars. In particular, we were looking at pretty high mass stars. And they were taking images on Subaru and then sending them to us. And basically what I did after that, I usually describe as programming magic. Yep. So we have a lot of images of a star. And Subaru is a ground-based observatory, so it has to look through the atmosphere. And of course, Earth's atmosphere is wonderful. It allows us to be alive and breathe. But when you have to look through it for astronomical observations, it's sort of the most annoying thing ever. The atmosphere is very turbulent. There's a lot of things going on. So a lot of what I was doing was really just trying to clean up these images. So I'd get a lot of images. And basically what I was trying to do is sort of subtract out all the starlight from the host star to see a planet orbiting around it. So it was a rather complicated process. It was a method that was developed by somebody else. And I was mainly, because I was just an undergrad, so at first I'm mainly just reducing this data. And that's how we were able to find Derek. So the cool thing about it is you actually do, like we can see him there. He looks very small, even though he's very large actually. So Derek's about about 170 light years away. We're predicting still around 13 Jupiter masses, but it's uncertain. So we can sort of try to estimate the mass based off of how bright Derek is in the infrared, but those models aren't perfect. So we're not sure if, because 13 Jupiter masses is usually the cutoff between a planet and a brown dwarf, and brown dwarfs aren't considered planet because they do have some fusion going on inside of them. It's deuterium fusion, so they're not considered stars. But so it was very exciting to be a part of that discovery. There weren't many directly imaged planets at that time, and even less were discovered by college students. I mean, at that point in time, with directly imaged planets, we were probably the only college students that had found one. It was really exciting for me, because I'd never been interviewed by anyone before Suddenly people were calling us and they wanted to know about the planet. And then everyone's like, why Derek? And they were looking for some really deep reason there. And I was like, ah, Derek. Looks like a Derek. It was my introduction to the world of science communication as well. Fantastic. The right person in the right place at the right time. And what a terrific way to kickstart your career. Now, Something leapt out when I was reading your thesis. Your acknowledgements were terrific. 
your PhD advisor, Professor Lisa Kaltenegger, and your astrophysics undergrad advisor, Dr. Joe Carson, get special mentions. Would you like to tell us some more about those who are inspiring your current research and perhaps some of the inspirations for your journey? Yeah, sure. So I've been really, really fortunate for the amount of support I've received throughout this scientific journey. Well, like I said, one of my main initial inspirations was Carl Sagan. I should give a shout out to my dad here too, because he's the one who was like, oh, let's look at these stars. Let's look through this telescope. Isn't that crazy? I was like, whoa, that is crazy. Yep. I think it was really essential that I had so much support as an undergraduate, because like I said, I was the only scientist in my family. I really had no idea what I was getting myself into, like literally no idea. I didn't really know PhDs were. When I learned that if I got my PhD, that people would call me doctor, I was like, whoa, that can't be real. So cool. But yeah, so I was really very fortunate with my undergraduate department. My advisor, Joe Carson, was very patient with me. He's very kind, very patient, very thoughtful. And he was always very encouraging, even when I was messing things up. I think that was really important because at that point in time, I probably could have been very discouraged if I didn't feel like I knew what I was doing. And maybe I should go back to something that's more familiar to me. So he is very supportive and they have a lot of really wonderful professors in that department. It's not a very large department. And I do believe that if I hadn't had such a supportive community there, I wouldn't have been willing to go on to graduate school. And I was really, really excited when I got into Cornell for graduate school, but I was also really terrified. So I guess that's shout out to all of the graduate students in my department. And also there've been some really supportive faculty members at Cornell as well. It took a lot of people to help me get there because everyone needs help sometime, especially if you've chosen to do something where you're not really sure what you're doing, which is what I was doing. So I was really, really fortunate there to get so much support at all these different levels of my education. Very good. Well, let's talk about some of the science now. Mm -hmm. Let's look at your thesis now. Last call for life, habitability of terrestrial planets orbiting red giants and white dwarfs. And first of all, can you give us a current thinking on the definition of habitable zones, Goldilocks zones, temperate zones? I've even heard a convincing argument for calling it the Echelwatt zone. The <laughs> Earth could have liquid water on the surface zone. What is the habitable zone? It's a very good question there because from the name, a lot of people think habitable zone means that if a planet's in the habitable zone, that it has life on it. And that's absolutely not true. So usually when you hear the term habitable zone, they're just referring to the region around a star where there could be liquid water on the surface of the planet because you get... The Goldilocks comes in because it's like, ah, it's not too hot that all the water would evaporate. It's not too cold that all the water would freeze. But that's not everything when it comes to life. So I do a lot of science outreach for local schools. And I'll even show like very young kids a diagram of our solar system and the habitable zone. And you can see that Mars and Venus are in the habitable zone. It's like, 
And I ask them, like, do you want to live on Mars and Venus? And they know they don't want to. Venus has acid rain and Mars doesn't really have an atmosphere. So there's another element there. But that doesn't mean that the habitable zone is useless, though. So I try to think of it mainly as like a tool to sort of guide some of our thinking. My former office mate at Cornell, Jack Madden, who's also just received his PhD in this field, has this really good analogy where he compares using the habitable zone to putting together a jigsaw puzzle. And when you start off a jigsaw puzzle, it's really confusing, there's pieces everywhere. So you wanna start with what you know, what's really well defined. So you usually start with the edge pieces. It's like, okay, I know what this is, I know what I'm looking for. And from there, you can move inward. And that's sort of how I think of the habitable zone. It's like, okay, we know, at least for Earth-like life, which is the only type of life we understand, and I wouldn't even say that we really understand it. Like, okay, you need water for that. Let's come up with something that shows where there could be water on a planet. And like, this is just a starting point. So it's sort of just a tool to help guide our thinking, and especially since astrobiology, which usually is what the habitable zone is. When you're studying astrobiology, so just anything pertaining to the search of life in the universe, you're usually thinking of the habitable zone. It's, it's a rather young field. I mean, the first exoplanets weren't find, found right, until the 1990s, and then they didn't start to have like a really big sample to study until about 2010. So it's a young field, so I say for now, it's okay that we're using the habitable zone sort of as this guiding tool, but it's not like the end all, this means things are habitable, which often the media portrays it to be. So I feel like that's part of what I do as a public service is go to schools and say the habitable zone doesn't mean it's habitable. Yeah, very good. Thank you for clearing that up there now. Your thesis has a focus on modeling planets orbiting red giants and white dwarfs. So you've picked some particularly difficult targets, but some important ones. Your work informs us on what to look for when the, say, the ELT and the James Webb Space Telescope come online, hopefully in the next five years. I also saw in your latest paper with Zip and Lynn and Lisa Koltenegger, mm -hmm that we now have observations of debris disks and possible planets orbiting white dwarfs. Can you tell us about the peculiarities of researching rocky exoplanets orbiting white dwarfs, please? Sure. So white dwarfs are really interesting. So that's what our sun will become one day, not for many billions of years. Sometimes when I talk about these topics to young kids, they think that the sun's going to blow up tomorrow. And I spend a lot of time comforting them and telling them this isn't something we have to worry about. Um, so yeah, white dwarfs, when stars die, less massive stars like our sun, there's going to be a white dwarf left, be left behind. So it's usually about as massive as the sun, a little less, but it's only about the size of Earth. And that part about it being the size of Earth is what's really interesting here. The white dwarfs start off really hot because they were formerly the center of a star, very hot. And over time, they're cooling down because they don't have an internal energy source anymore. It doesn't have any fusion. Nothing's heating it up. It's just you've left out a cup of coffee and it's cooling off. And that's what's happening for the white dwarf. So something that was really interesting to me about white dwarfs is 
that it is very similar in size to Earth. Most of the planets around other stars that we know about were found via transits. We're waiting for a planet to pass in front of a star, and when it does that, the planet's blocking some of the light from the star. And the larger the planet is compared to the star, the more light it blocks, which means the easier it is to detect. So if you were looking for an Earth-sized planet around a white dwarf, so usually with planets orbiting around white dwarfs, about half of the light or more is being blocked. You compare that to Earth passing in front of a star the size of our sun, only about 0.01% of the light is being blocked. Yep. So it's a lot easier, it would be a lot easier to detect the Earth-like planet in front of the white dwarf. But of course there are some issues there. So for one thing, the planets orbiting a white dwarf, to be in the habitable zone, it has to be very close to the white dwarf. So the white dwarf is very small, and because it's small, it's radiating a lot less energy. So the planets would sort of have to be huddled up against it. And those planets couldn't have been there before the star became a white dwarf, because to become a white dwarf, the star is first a red giant, which I believe we'll talk about next, the other part of my thesis. And the red giant, so in our solar system, it's going to, when our star becomes a red giant, it's going to expand out probably to that Earth's orbit. So anything closer to the sun than Earth is just gone. So that's where the white dwarf habitable zone would be. So any planets around the white dwarf would either have to have started off in the outer solar system and migrated inward over time, which is possible, or they'd have to be new planets from after the white dwarf formed. So I like the latter idea a lot more. So we have seen that a decent amount of white dwarfs do have debris disks around them. So I like to think it's sort of the second genesis of life because around just, you know, normal living stars, they form and they have a disk around them and that's where the planets form. So I'm like, okay, maybe it happens on a smaller scale for white dwarfs. So we're not sure of the occurrence rate of planets around white dwarfs. It's still a really new field. But we do know that there's a lot of evidence for planets falling onto white dwarfs. So the hope is that not all of them fall onto the white dwarf, that some of them just stay in orbit. So there's that. We have to ask ourselves, how could the planet get there? What would it be like? And also another important note here is, I mentioned earlier, white dwarfs are initially extremely hot. So if a planet was very close to the white dwarf when it's that hot, things like the UV radiation are really strong and it could strip the planet of its atmosphere and sterilize the surface. Yep. So I do like the idea that maybe these planets form a little later after the white dwarf has cooled down a bit, or maybe they were planets that were initially very far from the star and they migrate inward and they miss the high UV part. So what I did in my research is I put planets in my models in the habitable zone around the white dwarf and I modeled how the atmosphere would be different. So even if you were to put Earth around another star, even if it was at the same distance where it received the same total amount of light as we get here, the atmosphere would change. And the main reason for that is the amount of UV radiation reaching the planet would change. And UV is very high energy. That's why we have to wear sunscreen when we go outside. And it's high enough energy that it could break apart molecules in the atmosphere. So the amount of UV sort of drives the atmospheric chemistry. So a lot of my research is putting Earth-like planets in different scenarios 
and seeing how the chemistry changes. So that's mainly what I was working on for white dwarfs is asking myself, how would an Earth-like planet look to us around a white dwarf? And that's sort of my starting point there because no one had thought about that. So I figured answering the most basic question first would be important. Fantastic. Now, another thing you were working on was almost the opposite extreme. You were working on red giants and how they evolved off the main sequence, but you've pointed out that their habitable zones also evolve, and that was a penny drop moment for me. Can you tell us about your modelling of the evolution of habitable zones? Yeah, so in particular... I'm really interested in the red giant phase because the habitable zone moves a lot farther from the star. So stars are, you know, we talk about them as if they're alive. What we really mean is that fusion's going on. But they do change a lot throughout their lifetimes. So in the main sequence, that's where our sun is now, there's not huge amounts of change, so we don't usually think about it. But when a star becomes a red giant, it starts to change a lot. So like I mentioned before, when our sun becomes a red giant, it's going to expand out probably to the orbit of Earth. So obviously this is not going to be good news for Earth. It will obviously be too hot there because it'll be touching a star. But what's really interesting here is if you evolve the habitable zone along with the star in our solar system, you could see that suddenly Jupiter and Saturn are going to be in the habitable zone. So if you were on a moon around those planets, the weather would maybe be nice for the first time and not frozen. So what's really exciting about that to me is there's objects covered in ice like Europa and Enceladus that they have these ice shells, but we know they have liquid water oceans underneath. And right now it can, it can be very frustrating when I think about it because we have these water worlds in the outer solar system, but we don't know if there's life there because it's hidden from us by really thick ice sheets. And one day, I hope there are some missions in the works. We'll be able to send some sort of robot there and drill through the ice and, you know, look down into the water and see if there's fish or special fish in that water. However, the idea was if we look at red giants, which there's quite a few of these dying stars in the vicinity of our sun, maybe if we look into the habitable zones of those stars, we could see sort of a Europa or an Enceladus analog there. And we don't have to wait, you know, the 5 billion years for it to happen in our solar system. And this is also really interesting to me because we have this term in planet formation called the ice line or the frost line. And basically past that line, we say, oh, it's much easier for things to condense. That's why there's gas giants there. And that's why if you look at our solar system, gas giants are far away from the sun and cold instead of close to the sun and warm. It's just when it's colder, farther away from the star, it's easier for gas to condense. What's exciting about these red giant habitable zones is that they are past these ice lines. And it is in our solar system, it's past the ice line of our system that over 99% of our entire solar system's water is there. And like I was saying before, we know Earth-like life needs water. So I it's pretty exciting to think, oh, there's going to be a habitable zone in a place that should be really water and volatile rich. So what I was doing in this paper, and once again, no one had really gone and simulated the atmospheres of planets around red giants. It's sort of a theme of my thesis. And I'm like, oh, let's think about this different type of star 
and model an atmosphere around it. So what was really interesting to me was not only to think of what were the atmospheres of these planets in these formerly frozen areas look like, but also how long could a planet stay in the habitable zone there? Because red giants evolve, well, compared to the main sequence very quickly. So our sun's gonna be on the main sequence in total about 10 billion years. But if you're looking at timescales for our sun as a red giant, they're much, much shorter. So when I was modeling these atmospheres, I was also modeling planetary orbits around red giants to see, okay, where can I keep something in the habitable zone for as long as possible? And it's only about 100 million years there. Yep. So that might, that's obviously very long to someone like me or you. I mean, I personally think two weeks is a really long time. <laughs> but in terms of life developing and evolving, 100 million years might not be long enough. We're not completely sure when life emerged on Earth. We have some bounds for it or like, okay, we know that like 3.8 billion years, there's some evidence of fossilized life, but that doesn't mean there wasn't life before that. So when I talk about these potentially habitable worlds or red giants, I prefer to think of them as having developed life on the main sequence when maybe it's something like Europa or Enceladus and it's protected by an icy shell, but it's in a warm water ocean underneath and it doesn't care about the ice or the fact that it's hidden from us and that the life was already there to evolve and during the red giant phase it's just being uncovered so that's mainly what the work i did around red giants for and that's why the red giant work and the white dwarf work that's why my thesis is called last call for life because it's sort of the last chance there before the star is completely done but I really enjoyed having the opportunity to explore these new potential habitability scenarios that hadn't been given much thought. Because like I said earlier, astrobiology is a young field. It's really still developing. We're still not completely sure what it is or what it means. But because of that, that means there's a lot of things people haven't looked into, which means you have a lot of opportunities to do things no one's ever done before, which has been really exciting for me. Very good. Well, let's move on to that now. Many of our listeners will have heard of SETI and the Drake equations, but could you give us a short primer on biosignatures? What are they? What's a good example? And what's the current best instrumentation to detect and analyse exoplanet atmospheres? Sure. So... Biosignatures are like the habitable zone, defined in a bunch of different ways. But when I use the word, it's basically thinking mainly about gases in an atmosphere that were created by life. So one experiment in particular I think is really interesting with biosignatures is something Carl Sagan did in the 1990s. So there was the Galileo space probe that was heading to Jupiter. And when it had to come, it was launched, and then it had to come back close to Earth again for a gravity assist to move faster to Jupiter. And when Galileo was near Earth, what Carl Sagan did was he took spectral data of Earth. So he basically was just analyzing the light coming off of Earth's atmosphere. 
Yep. And by analyzing that light, we can tell what the composition of the atmosphere was. So what Carl Sagan was doing was he took this light from Earth's atmosphere and tried to discover life on Earth. So the idea here is that the atmosphere of a planet with life should look different from an atmosphere of a planet without any surface life. So a lot of life on Earth, surface light, is interacting with the atmosphere. Like we have trees, they're giving up oxygen, they're bringing in CO2, we have cows giving off methane, humans are you know, breathing, hopefully we're all breathing, we're breathing in oxygen out, carbon dioxide, and also now we're doing a lot of things to add more carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. So the idea is if we didn't have plants, livestock, everything, humans, we wouldn't have all this extra, you know, oxygen, methane in the atmosphere. And that's really where biosignatures stem from. And what's difficult here with biosignatures is asking ourselves, what could we see in another planet's atmosphere that would convince us that life would be there? Because just because we look into a planetary atmosphere, which by the way, we don't have the technology to look into a terrestrial planet's atmosphere yet, but in the future, when we look into an atmosphere, what's going to convince us, like, oh, there must be life on the surface? So a lot of biosignatures is just asking ourselves, what can only be created by life? Because there's a lot of geological processes, particularly here on Earth. So although it'd be really cool to see something in an atmosphere that was created by volcanic activity or just geological activity, we want to make sure that we'd be able to identify, yes, this was caused by life. Yep. So something, a combination of biosignatures that I particularly like, that a lot of people like, is looking for oxygen and methane together. So both of those things are created by life on Earth. But what's special about them is how they interact with each other. So the danger there is we wouldn't want to see a lot of oxygen on a planet and think, oh, there's life, but it turns out it was just created by a geological process but you have oxygen and methane together. So methane is what we call a reducing species. So basically that just means it's reacting with oxygen and it's taking it out of the atmosphere. So the analogy I usually use here is grad students and pizza. So if you look into a room and you see a lot of grad students with pizza, you know either the grad students just got there, the pizza just got there, or someone is continuously supplying the pizza. It's not a steady state system because the grad students are going to consume the pizza. And similarly, the way chemistry works, that's what oxygen and methane are like. If we see both a lot of oxygen and methane, we know because of how they interact that something's creating a lot of oxygen on the surface of the planet. And so far, the only thing we know that can do that is life. But notice that I said so far it's possible that there is a geological process that can create a lot of oxygen that we haven't thought of or discovered yet. So I feel like that's our best bet so far, but we do have to constantly reevaluate that. And like I said before, so we can't do this yet with terrestrial planetary atmospheres, but soon, hopefully, we'll have the James Webb Space Telescope. I'm not quite sure when. It's supposed to launch at the end of next year, and I know that there was something in the beginning of this year, because it keeps getting pushed back a lot. Um, 
Yep. And someone in the beginning of this year says, oh, the only reason the proposal deadline for this would be pushed back is if there's just like some life-changing event. And there was a pandemic. So yeah, I feel like they get a free pass if they delay the launch more. So hopefully within the next few years, we'll see JWST. It'll be capable of looking into the atmospheres of at least a few Earth-sized planets. And then later on this decade, we will hopefully see things like the ELT, the Extremely Large Telescope. It'll be ground-based, but it'll be, have a 30-meter mirror there, collecting dish. So those are the things sort of on the horizon that could do that. But right now, we're limited to just theorizing and preparing for this sort of age of data, which will hopefully come soon. Very good. Now, that gives us a segue right into your current research. To me, it looks like you're providing other researchers with the fingerprints of exoplanet candidates before they are even found at a crime scene. Can you tell us about your current main focus? What collaborations are you in? And you mentioned the pandemic. How is COVID-19 impacting on the research of you and your colleagues? Yeah, so um, good question. I'm actually approaching an academic transition right now. So I've recently gotten my PhD from Cornell and I'm still working with people there. But I am about to transition into a postdoctoral position at the Denmark Technical University. Yep. So one way I'd say COVID has affected my research is that I'm not over in Denmark right now like I probably would have been without the pandemic. So traveling and getting things like work visas has become more complicated. So I'd say that's the main way that my research has been affected by COVID. Because honestly, other than that, it's a testament to how purely theoretical my work is that working in the office doesn't actually affect my research. So everything's gone virtual. If anything, I feel like because we're all working from home, people are more willing to have meetings because before the pandemic, when we could all work in the building together, we would just sort of, if you had a question, you just go and ask someone a question in their office or maybe bump into them in the hallway and talk to them. But now you have to schedule meetings for that. So I have a lot of meetings. One of the nice things, there are not many nice things resulting from the pandemic, but one of the nice things is because everything is virtual, that sort of means that all your collaborators are the same distance from you. So I feel I've definitely been talking to people more from other universities because the distance isn't an issue anymore, because even people living in Ithaca, I have to have a virtual meeting with them as well. So to answer your question about what I'm currently working on right now is right now I'm still, I'm doing a lot of work with these potential white dwarf planets right now. So in the past I've modeled the atmospheres of these planets. I've modeled what the planetary spectra would look like and how we could look for biosignatures. But right now me and some colleagues are actually simulating observations of these hypothetical white dwarf planets. So like I said earlier, if you have an Earth-sized planet around a white dwarf, it's going to block off a lot of the light, near half of the light. And no one's ever really simulated transit observations like that. So one of the main products I'm working on right now 
is putting in real numbers to see when James Webb launches, how much observation time would you need to detect biosignatures on a white dwarf planet? So that's my main focus right now. Although my other main focus is figuring out how to move my life to Denmark. So hopefully I will be starting this new position in September. And I won't really be working much on dying and dead stars there, but I am still going to be working on life in the universe and astrobiology. And nothing is set in stone yet, but it looks like I'm going to have the opportunity to work on thinking about more about the origins of life on Earth and therefore on other planets. So we know sort of when life started, but we don't completely understand the conditions that were necessary for life to start. And if we understand those better, then that means we could hopefully find life better in the universe. So it looks like I'll mainly be turning my focus to let's think about what's necessary for life to even start rather than thinking about how life would change around different types of stars. So this is still the theoretical realm and hopefully in a few years we'll have James Webb launch and we'll start to see some real data and if the history of exoplanet science has taught us anything it means we'll probably get really strange data that maybe we don't understand at all. But that'll be really exciting to be able to look into the atmospheres of terrestrial planets for the first time. And even if it severely confuses us, it's still going to get us closer to understanding other planets. So, but until then, I will stay theoretical and just think and model more about what life needed to start. Fantastic. What a great challenge you've set yourself now. The mic is all yours, Thea, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the equity and diversity challenges we face in science communities in outreach or science denialism or science career paths or your own passion for research or our quest for new knowledge. The microphone is all yours. Thank you. Something that is very important to me as a scientist and, you know, as a human person is that, yes, science is very important, but it's also really important that we pay attention to the world around us and focus at least some of our energy on improving our own planet. So there's not really a point in looking for these new habitable planets if we can't even take care of our own planet. Yep. So... I'm referring to a lot of things here. So first of all, there's climate change, which obviously is we need to take care of our planet's atmosphere. I mean, I work on atmospheric science. I know that we're putting things into the atmosphere that are going to heat up our planet and it's not going to have a good ending. So we need to make sure that we're working on that right now before it's too late. Yep. But in addition to that, keeping this planet habitable, which is very important to me, I've done quite a bit of activism relating to climate change, is that we also should be thinking about, you know, making the lives of other people on this planet better as well. So I really just don't like this idea that we're all sort of, you know, shut up in these ivory towers or whatever, just like sort of working on our science, which as you've heard from this interview, my work is very theoretical. I mean, I think it's really cool and really exciting, but I also need to, you know, keep myself literally grounded here on earth because 
This is our planet. This is all that we have. So yeah, if I could get any message out there to other scientists, and not just other scientists, just other people, it's that we really do need to think about not just ourselves, not just science, but everything around us and how to help other people. Because there's a lot of problems right now. I mean, obviously there's the pandemic, which is the main problem of the world right now, particularly in my country, in the U.S., but there's a lot of other problems. When I look at all these problems in the world, I feel like a lot of them are caused by sort of this apathy. So in addition to doing science or whatever it is that you do with your life, I do think it's really important that we make a conscious effort to empathize with those around us. Like, yes, other people can be really frustrating and really annoying, but just take another second to put yourself in their shoes and maybe you won't be as annoyed at them. Maybe you'll see that they're also human like you. And also just being more open-minded and constantly reevaluating your beliefs. So I do think it is very important that we do all have some beliefs or causes that we believe in and that we're willing to fight for. But we need to make sure that we're not just getting stuck in our beliefs. We're always being given new information. We're always being exposed to new things. And I think what's really important is that we're willing to take in this new information and sort of update our beliefs and how we're handling, how we're reacting to the world around us. Very good. Thank you very much. Now, is there anything else we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on? So what I'm keeping my eye on mainly is uh, the worldometer numbers for COVID-19. But in terms of science, in, especially in terms of astrobiology and biosignatures, it's going to be really exciting when the James Webb Space Telescope launches, hopefully within the next few years. But other than that, people are having new ideas every day. And even if they're just theoretical ideas, I think it's important that, you know, once again, we take in this new information and it gives us new ways to solve these problems that we're gonna have and just new ways to attack things. So just paying attention to what's going on around us and being open to new ideas and hopefully seeing JWST launch. Very good, thank you. Normally when I'm organizing the prompts for an interview, I normally send out as I've done with you, a set of prompts. But can I ask an impromptu question now, just before we <laughs> sign off? Sure. Are we alone? Oh, I would think that we aren't. The universe is very, very big, and we're very small. And the more we look for exoplanets, the more we're finding how common they are. So it looks like nearly all stars have exoplanets and we've got about 400 billion stars in our own galaxy. And of course we don't know the occurrence rate of life, but I would say one in 400 billion is a really small number and that's just our galaxy. So statistically speaking, I would say that there's life in the universe. But of course I don't have anything to back this up with. <laughs> yet yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe one day someday at the moment n equals one well thank you very much dr theo kazakis 
On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you, and thank you especially for your time and your busy schedule. And we'll encourage all listeners to check out your most recent paper in the archive server and published in the Astrophysical Journal Letters. You can get the archive preprint from tinyurl.com forward slash tkazagis. That's T-K-O-Z-A-K-I-S, or lowercase. And to follow Thea at, at Thea Kazakis on Twitter. Congratulations and thank you, Thea. Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure. Bye now. Bye. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored, and we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com. And another great Astro podcast is The Skyantists with Kirsten Banks and Dr. Ankel Lopez Sanchez. And for observers and astrophotographers, always check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astro Blogger website. Till then, isolate, take care, look after yourself and your loved ones. And please do wear a mask when you can't socially distance yourself. Radio Wave.